Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out, and then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. I'm Bethany McLean, and this is Making a Killing. Interviews exploring the headlines you thought you understood and finding the lessons we can all learn from them. Already in this series, I've spoken with Sahil Patel about Netflix, Mike Isaac about Uber, and Peter Robeson about Boeing. I'm at BethanyMac12 on Twitter. If there's a defining commonality to upper-income life in America for people with children, it's school stress. How do you get your kids into the right preschool such that they can get into the right high school, such that they can go to the very best college, and what sport should they play in order to improve those very difficult odds? Because, oh my goodness, everything hinges on whether or not they attend the right college. So, for anyone who is already worried, the title of Paul Tuff's new book, The Years That Matter Most, how college makes or breaks us, is not exactly reassuring. He writes, It sometimes felt as though the country was splitting into two separate and unequal nations, with a college diploma the boundary that divided them. As that quote shows, the issues this book raises are so much greater than the stress it causes the elite. And while we're all fixated on the Varsity Blues scandal, that really is just the proverbial canary in the coal mine. College, which was supposed to be the great equalizer in America, has become something that both depends on and reinforces class and privilege. This is a huge deal for the business world, and not even mostly because the impending student loan bomb threatens our economy. If we're losing talent, we're losing more than mere words can say. This is also, of course, a huge deal for our society. It's not too grandiose to say that education determines the shape of the society in which we live. So what shape do we want that to take? Tuff's book was fascinating to me for another reason. I'm obsessed with how data can be manipulated. 
As Mark Twain famously said, lies, damn lies, and statistics. How apparent facts can be not factual at all upon closer examination. How words on the surface can mask the reality underneath. This is a major underlying theme of his book. What colleges tell the world they want in their student body is not actually what they want. The business of standardized testing is not only more ruthless than you ever would have imagined, it's disingenuous as well. The famed news and world report survey of the best colleges, well, what does best mean? Oh, and we'll get into the pervasive idea that low-income Americans should skip college and become welders. I'm so delighted to be here with Paul, who has written three previous books, including the best-selling How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. He's also a contributing writer to the New York Times Magazine, among many other things, and he's here in Chicago on his book tour, so we get to record this episode in my home city. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm delighted to have you here. So before we get into some of the numbers and the societal cost, let's start with the individual human cost of this. I was so struck by some of your characters, and you begin with a girl named Shannon, who realizes that this institution that she's poured so much of herself into has decided she's unworthy. What was this like to talk to these young students? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a, a, an amazing uh, opportunity to do this reporting. I mean, so it took me all over the place. It took me six years to report it. And But the, the reporting that really sticks out in my mind is the individual conversations with students who were making their way through high school and then into college. And Shannon, Shannon was certainly one of the ones who stuck with me the most. The thing that really drew me to her and, and the reason that I opened the book with her is that I think she was the most idealistic of the high school students that I met, that she really believed in this idea of a meritocracy, really, she really believed in this idea that college was this ticket to social mobility. For her, she was growing up in a low-income, single-parent home in the South Bronx, an incredible student in high school, and wanted to believe that that was going to get her to a college that was going to change her life and change her family's life. But she felt an enormous amount of stress on her to to jump through all the hoops and overcome all the hurdles in order to get there. And she also, as time went on, and especially on the day that I was with her, the day that she was waiting to hear the results, that idea that there was some logic to, to the whole thing, that there was some sense that hard work paid off, that idea was really under threat for her in her mind. And it turns out to be under threat, right? She realizes there's a lot more luck in this than there is necessarily any kind of meritocratic methodology. Yeah, I mean, she, it really felt kind of capricious. So she gets in one place, doesn't get into others, and she realizes that there is some way that it is just kind of random. And part of what I tried to do in that first chapter is use her story as this microcosm of how the whole system can often feel random to students, whether they're affluent or low income like her, but how there's also these deep inequities and unfairnesses that for a student like her, who you know doesn't have family connections, doesn't have family money, the obstacles for her are just so much bigger than for anybody else. One of the fascinating things to me was that the inequities you lay bare continue through someone's college career. There's a really emotional anecdote of a young woman named Kiki Gilbert who's in her seminar at Princeton, and you watch how she is playing a different game, as you put it, than the other students. Explain that. Yeah, Kiki was another student I felt really lucky to get to know. So she came from a low-income, really sort of chaotic family that moved around a lot during her childhood, ended up in Charlotte, North Carolina for the last few years of high school. 
an amazing student, got into Princeton. And then, so I watched her as she was making her way through her freshman year. And academically, she did great. I mean, a few hiccups and bumps at the beginning, but mostly really did did well in her freshman year. But socially, emotionally, psychologically, the experience of being thrust into this this world of Princeton that mostly for her just felt very affluent, very white, very privileged. It was jarring for her. Partly it was just jarring in the way that social mobility is always jarring. When you're a low-income student, you're suddenly leaving behind your family, your home, your culture, uh, learning the new habits and customs of this new world. But what really struck me for her in sitting there in that humanities seminar with her and all of these mostly affluent, mostly white students was how she was kind of playing this different game. She was very focused on like reading the book extremely carefully and arguing in a very precise way, making her point about this ancient Roman text. And all of the other students had this kind of ease. They were sort of relaxed and laid back and sort of ostentatiously the laid back. nonchalance, it, right? Exactly. What it felt like to me was that she was playing this different game than that. She was very sort of uptight and intent on getting everything exactly right. And there are a number of sociologists whose work I write about in this book that says that this other sort of affluent affect, this laid back approach is actually how like how you make the system work for you like that's what that's what you're rewarded for at a place like and Princeton. it's what employers are looking for and so it becomes this very defining aspect and I thought it was so interesting that you pointed out that college success isn't just about academic success the way low-income students who aren't raised in this world may think it is there's this other game you have to know how to play too I found that that fascinating and, and frightening how did the way you thought about upward mobility change it's a great question. I mean, so I've been drawn to the question of upward mobility, I think, my whole my whole life, certainly my whole writing career. It is just this phenomenon that for me is important in two ways. One is that it's important in terms of the politics and the sociology of the country itself. Like if you don't have upward mobility, so many of the American ideas just start to fall apart. But it's also fascinating to me just on a personal level like I just love hearing stories it's um, totally it, inspirational yeah, yeah and and it, and and complicated too I mean it's never smooth it's never easy I think especially when you're going through that mobility in your late teenage early adult years which are complicated enough so that's a lot of what drew me to that idea and you know some of what drew me to writing this book about higher education was this understanding that it's those years, it's those years right after high school that now in American life have become so crucial in terms of social mobility. You know, I've written a lot about early childhood, about K-12 education in previous books, and certainly what happens in those years is important, but it is those college years or whatever happens to you after high school that the signs in the economy are that that now is, is the period that most defines what's going to happen in terms of your mobility after that. Which is probably really frightening to any parent um, listening to this podcast, but before we get into that, I want to come back to a little bit this human cost and this societal cost, because if the system is broken, there's an awful lot of waste, right? Waste of human potential. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like that is definitely one of the big conclusions that there are all of these young people especially from you know modest and low incomes who have the potential to be great students and great graduates and, and to contribute to society in all sorts of ways. But the way that we are doing college admissions and then the way that we are helping or failing to help students succeed and persist and graduate from college, it's wasting a whole lot of that potential. 
Right. And I was thinking as I as I read your book, how every business leader should be taking an active role and thinking about this because this is the future of their companies as well. So I'm embarrassed to admit, I actually didn't know about the fate of the American Graduation Initiative until I read your book. Tell us a little bit about that. You set it up in a fascinating contrast to the GI Bill from so many years ago. So explain that. Sure. Yeah. I, I didn't know about either. That makes me feel better. <laughs> so... President Obama, when he was elected back in 2008, early in his presidency, he made this big promise, this big commitment. He pointed out that the United States had fallen from being number one for decades in terms of the percentage of its young people who graduated from college, that we had fallen by 2009 to number 12. There were 11 other countries that were graduating more of their young people. And he said, this is wrong. We're going to change it. We're going get, to get back to being number one within 10 years. So he put the deadline at the end of 2019. So it's time to check and see if we've succeeded. And in fact, we haven't. We are still number 12, 10 years later. So in this final chapter of the book, I contrast that with the GI Bill era where we actually did commit as a country to changing our whole approach to higher education, to, to educating a whole generation, millions of returning GIs. And that had a, a huge effect not only on those GIs and their families, but on the country. It, a lot of what created the great post-war economic boom and the great American American middle class of that era. But by contrast, when President Obama in 2009 made this pledge, this commitment, the country did not come together. And he and his administration and Congress did not put the kind of resources behind it that happened in the GI Bill era. And so the American Graduation Initiative was one key factor in the sort of collapse of that dream of that commitment. This was a pledge to spend $12 billion on community colleges, which is really where, I mean, all of the data suggests that is where investments are most needed. That is, those are the institutions that are most underserved. Those are the institutions that can help, especially not the Kiki Gilberts and the Shannon Torreses, but the young people who are not superior students who don't have other options. Community colleges can get them to a good sort of middle-class living if, if we run those institutions right. But we haven't been. We've been underfunding them for years. And so this was going to try and reverse that. And it all got mixed up with the health care bill. And at the last minute, Congress just sliced those $12 billion from the budget. The White House did not put up my, much of a fuss. And it just got dropped. And what really struck me, I mean, the fact that you didn't really know about it, I didn't really know about it. I don't think anyone really paid attention to it. It was this, you know, here was the president making this huge commitment and it just sort of sank without a trace. And I think that's indicative of the way that we as a country have failed to coalesce, to motivate, to con connect over this goal of improving higher education to provide more social mobility. It's a really striking marker when you think back to the GI Bill. The contrast you set up is so striking because you think back to how the country came together over around that. I mean, of course, there was skepticism from the elites about whether we wanted this mass of, you know, uneducated people descending on colleges, but the country came together around that. And when you think of the contrast to this just fading without even a whimper, it made me worried that maybe education is a sign of our decline as a, a coherent society rather than both causing it and a sign of it, right? Yeah. You know, there's these two sort of competing traditions in American history, right? One is this, this tradition of social mobility. So I went back and, and read Democracy in America. And what was so striking about, so here's this, you know, French aristocrat, Alexis de Tocqueville, writing in the early years of the, the United States about what seems new and important and different about the United States. And it was social mobility that he kept coming back to. And he found it sort of horrifying. He was like, why can't the United States just have a nice aristocracy like France does so everyone knows their place in society? 
society, but it was such a marker of sort of what we believed in. But there, I think at the same time, there has been this long skepticism in the United States about elites, about education, about the idea that you need to go to one of these elite institutions in order to succeed. And I feel like right now, those two American traditions are coming together, are, are sort of colliding. Yep. Butting heads with each other in a exactly. very interesting way. Yeah. And so that that's also what's striking me about the GI Bill era, that what succeeded about it was sort of an accident, you know, that so many of the representatives in Congress who passed this bill didn't really think that many of these GIs would take them up on it. They thought, you know, these are working class kids, the children of farmers and factory workers. They're not going to go to college. They're not going to succeed if they do. And then they do, right? So then they all come back. They all The, the American undergraduate population doubles in just a few years. And this whole generation changes. And so I feel like we're in another moment where Americans and especially American elites are really skeptical that there is this potential for many more working class and low income people to succeed at college, except that the need for it is even greater now because the opportunities without a college degree are so much less than they were in the 1940s. Maybe that's actually in a weird way, a more optimistic way to think about this, that societal change, transformational societal change has been an accidental surprise in many cases. And the mere fact that so many people aren't on board with it now actually is thus it ever was, right? And we just need to get something done anyway. If that's true, though, then there's the question of, so how is it going to happen? Like, how do you get that moment where suddenly Americans are able to say, hey, actually, you know, people can succeed in college who we, we might not expect to. So one of the things that struck me in your book was all the data and the way data has been appropriated and misappropriated and misused. You came out pretty clearly, despite some data implying that good students who went to Penn State were as likely to do well as if they went to Princeton. You came out pretty convinced that it does matter where, where you go. Yeah, this is a, something that, that economists have debated for a long time. I am persuaded by the work of two economists. Um, one is Carolyn Huxby, who is at Stanford. The other is Raj Chetty, who's now at Harvard, and he works with a whole collection of economists, a whole group of economists who are studying social mobility. And they both in their data have what I consider to be really strong indications that even if we would like it not to be the case, that it matters a lot where people go to college. If, if you look at it from an individual point of view, if you're a parent uh, worried about your child or if you're a student, I don't want people to interpret this as saying like you, you individual student, it really matters whether you go to Princeton or Penn State, because I do think that it's true that for individuals, there's a lot of variation, especially affluent students. They tend to do well, no matter where they graduate from. But on a societal level, it matters a whole lot. And it matters that the institutions that are doing the most to produce high income graduates, uh, which are the most selective institutions, it matters that there are very few low income students who are going to those institutions and a lot of high income students. And because the low income students are the ones whose life has the most potential to change, right? I thought this was a was a very telling quote in your book that it actually the elite college campus are almost entirely populated by the students who benefit the least from the education they receive. So explain that. Yeah. So this is something that Ross Chetty and his colleagues found that when low income students go to these super selective institutions, what he calls the Ivy Plus institutions, which are the Ivy League colleges, plus a few other highly selective institutions, their lives change a ton. You know, their potential, their income, uh, how much they make as adults is just transformed. Whereas for affluent students, there is an advantage to going to more selective institutions, but it's a much smaller one. And so these institutions have this ability to change the lives of young people like Shannon Torres and Kihi 
Gilbert. And there are very few Shannon Torres's and Kiki Gilbert's at these institutions. What Raj Chetty and his colleagues found is that at like at Princeton, for instance, I think 2.2% of the student body came from families in the bottom economic quintile and almost three quarters of the student body came from families in the top income quintile. So talk about that issue a little bit because it's one of the most striking acts of disingenuousness, for lack of a better way of putting it. In your book, the colleges say, we want these low-income students. This is the student population we, we want. But you point out that actually the student population they want is precisely the opposite of that. It's a complicated situation, and, and it's difficult for me to know exactly what is going on at these at these institutions. Like, I mean, I think there is, I think there are a few things. I mean, I think one thing is that Raj Chetty's data is a few years old, so it's from about 2013. So some of these institutions say that things have changed a lot since then, and that's possible that there have been some changes. But there's a lot of what I saw, especially looking at Princeton through the eyes of the student, Kiki Gilbert, that showed me that institutions like Princeton, there are all these ways that they can you know, nudge the numbers and game the numbers to make them seem more economically diverse than they really are. So my suspicion is that that continues to be what is going on at those institutions. Right. And colleges have a huge incentive to get people in the door who can pay and even the colleges who don't need people who can pay have an incentive to get high test scoring students in the door, right? Is that is that the right way to summarize it? It's a great way to summarize it. And so there are these two different types of incentives that, that push different sorts of institutions in the same way. And the, the sort of the algorithm that comes out of it is admit more rich kids for wherever, whatever kind of institution you're in. But it is slightly different. So I, I spent some time in the admissions office of a college in Hartford, Trinity College, which is highly selective institution, but not as selective as those Ivy Plus institutions. I didn't want to go there after reading your book, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> so Trinity, like a lot of four-year private institutions is losing money. So a quarter of the of four-year institutions are losing money each year. They're losing about $8 million a year. So they, like many other institutions that aren't the very wealthiest institutions, they need to admit more wealthy students just because they need to stay afloat. Most of their income comes from student tuition and fees. And so they need to look at the at their applicants as potential customers. But that top echelon of schools, the ones with the huge endowments, they don't really need tuition dollars at all. And yet they are the ones who are admitting the most affluent freshman classes. And there, I think it's much more to do with culture. You know, I think there are all these reasons, whether it's legacy students, whether it's the kind of athletes that they care about, whether it's students who have especially high test scores, all of these, what they consider markers of eliteness, exclusivity, excellence, they all correlate with family income. And it's partly a U.S. News and World Report ranking issue too, right, at all these schools. And that part of the ranking is the kids' test scores. So if test scores are biased in favor of family income, then that's what you're going to end up with if you want to keep your U.S. News ranking high. Yeah, there, I think there are all of these incentives that all correlate, right? So it's it's family income, it's legacies, it's test scores, it's just being able to pay tuition all of those pressures on on admissions, people push them toward students who already have a lot of money. On that note of legacies, I was struck by another statistic in your book. I think it was that Harvard admits a third of legacy of children of parents who, who have gone to Harvard versus 5% for the overall population average. It's just a fascinating statistic in this age of debates about affirmative action, right? What does affirmative action constitute? How did you come to think about the Varsity Blues scandal? That happened at the tail end of your reporting on this book or as, as you were finishing writing. And what did you think about it? So... 
I think, first of all, it was just it is just this kind of amazing story, right? The details of it are so kind of scandalous, ridiculous, the, the, the lengths to which families were willing to go. And so in some ways, it felt like it was completely different than anything that I was reporting on. I was reporting on, on families that were, you know, spending thousands of dollars to send their kids to expensive tutors, getting all, you know, finding other ways to get legal advantages in the system. But what really changed my thinking was reading back through the transcripts of the FBI wiretaps of these affluent parents who ended up being arrested and, and charged in the Varsity Blue scandal as they were talking to Rick Singer, the corrupt college coach at the heart of that scandal. And the way the parents sounded in these wiretaps, they, they didn't sound like they were part of a criminal conspiracy. They sounded just like all of the affluent parents who I had met in my reporting. They sounded like they just couldn't believe all the hoop that they had to jump through in order to get their kid into college. And this was just one more thing that they had to do. And of course, what they were doing was illegal and kind of crazy. They were, you know, sending in photos of their kids to have Rick Singer Photoshop the heads onto place kickers or, or uh, rowing teams, right. rowers or divers. And yet to them, it just felt like, okay, it's a crazy system. I, I get that it's unfair. So therefore, there must be no rules. Anything I do uh, is what I need to do for my kid. And so so I ended up feeling like it was this, right, you said canary in the coal mine, uh, th th this more extreme example of what has infected, I think, affluent parents all over the country as they deal with the anxiety of college applications. I thought that as I read your book, what's really the difference? I mean, perhaps illegality. But in moral terms, what's really the difference between paying a $400 an hour test coach to help your kid boost their scores on their SAT by 200 points and faking their SAT scores? Or what's really the difference between bribing a school to let your daughter in and donating $2 million to Harvard in order to get your child in? So it's all on a continuum that betrays how incredibly really corrupt the system has become. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I read after finishing the book was Felicity Huffman's letter to the judge who was sentencing her. And again, she broke the law. She you know, deserves the punishment that she got. But it was really hard not to sympathize with her reading that letter because what she described was not sort of this, this like ambition. I want more and more for my daughter. It was this sense of trying to avoid failure. She's just right. Rick Singer was able to convince her if you don't do these things for your kid, you are letting your child down. You're betraying your child. And I think that is such a you know, deep fear for parents. And I think that's behind so many of the perfectly legal crazy behaviors that especially affluent parents do this this sense that if every other parent is is hiring these tutors and these coaches and schlepping your kid to soccer games and squash practices, I need to be doing the same thing or I'm letting my child down. This incredible sense of insecurity that pervades modern American life, right? So I was also stunned to realize just how much of education really is big business. And I had not realized the college board. Were you shocked to realize what a, in many ways, ruthless big business it, it is? Yeah, I mean, I started reporting on the College Board back in 2013, and my when I first connected with them, I thought I was going to be writing something really positive about the efforts that they were taking to make college admissions fairer. But as the years went on and I continued to report on them, first of all, I found they were increasingly elusive about letting me see the data of these various experiments and interventions that they were doing. And as time went on, it started to feel like each of those moments of elusiveness connected to this bigger way that they were trying to shape the story about the role of, of standardized tests in admissions. What, what I kind of concluded about the College Board is that they are in some ways this sort of schizophrenic um, institution that has these two personalities. 
on the one hand, they are, you know, they're a nonprofit and they genuinely are uh, trying to address issues of inequity in higher education. On the other hand, they are a, a business that brings in more than a billion dollars a year in revenue that has some very highly paid executives, and they depend on selling a product, uh, the SAT, which is basically in a sort of Coke and Pepsi way, more or less indistinguishable from this competing product, the ACT. And when you get two companies that are competing for market share, they tend to behave pretty ruthlessly. And so that revenue enhancing side of the personality, I think is really at war with the more idealistic side. And during the years that I was reporting on the college board, it was the revenue enhancing side that was definitely winning. Let's pause on one of those elusive things about the college board, which is this idea that they argued for a long time that test prep didn't work. And yet there's a whole industry of test prep. How did you come to think about that? Test prep has for decades been this sort of existential threat to the SAT and to the college board. It started with Stanley Kaplan, this young guy from Brooklyn who started tutoring students in New York in his parents' basement and was able to help them get much better scores on the SAT. And this was during an era where the A definitely did stand for aptitude. The idea behind the SAT was that you couldn't study for it. And so the idea that by hanging out with Stanley Kaplan, you could increase your score was really threatening. And so they tried to discredit him. They tried to get him arrested, run him out of business, and it didn't work. And students who saw there was an advantage first with Stanley Kaplan, then later with Princeton Review, and then with lots of individual tutoring services, realized there was this real advantage. And so for many years, the College Board continued to say there's not much of an advantage that you can get. They had this one study that said you only get a small advantage from having any kind of tutoring. That did nothing to dissuade affluent parents from continuing to send their kids to tutoring centers. And I spent a lot of time with this one tutor in Washington, D.C., whose students were just making incredible gains in their scores. And then I think during the years that I was reporting on the College Board, the College Board decided that they, they couldn't keep this argument up any longer. And they changed their tune and decided to offer free test practice through this organization, this learning online learning system, Khan Academy. And in lots of ways, the product that they came up with, official SAT practice, is great. I mean, it is a good idea to have free SAT practice out there. But when it came time for them to analyze how well official SAT practice had done, who was practicing on Khan Academy and what kind of benefit they were getting from it, they chose to spin the data, spin the results of that study in ways that I felt didn't really reflect what was really going and on. And why? What was their incentive to spin the results? Everything that they were doing during these years was to try to make the case that in reality, the SAT made college admissions more equitable, more fair, that it was a friend of low-income students. And it just isn't. So, you know, every study of admissions makes it clear that SAT scores and family income correlate a whole lot. If you just look at high school GPA, you get a more socioeconomically diverse picture of who's succeeding. And so that's a problem, I think, for an institution. They could just do what they had done for years and just ignore that fact and say, like, that's the way it goes in America. Rich kids get better scores, and that's because they're smarter. And so that became harder for them to say. And so they try to make this alternate argument that, in fact, there were things they were doing that were leveling the playing field, that were giving low-income students this advantage, this opportunity through the SAT to 
get into the school of their choice and achieve social mobility. And so I think that the Khan Academy collaboration was a big part of that. They wanted it to show that the expensive test prep that rich families were paying so much for was actually not giving them an advantage, that low-income students were getting the same advantage from the Khan Academy program that affluent students were getting from high-priced test prep. David Coleman, the head of the College Board, when he announced this Khan Academy collaboration, said that this was basically going to put expensive test prep out of business. This was a bad day for them. He said it was basically the best thing he'd ever been part of in his life, right? I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it was something along those lines. No, I mean, the quote he said, he's I'm paraphrasing too, but was that it was, he had never seen the launch of a technology at this scale that did more to solve problems of racial inequity in the country than this. And data just did not bear that out. The main finding was that high income, white, Male students with college-educated parents, they were using Khan Academy more for longer periods of time than more disadvantaged groups. And so, I mean, the good the good news was that it was, if a low-income student used it, if a high-income student used it, their scores were going up in an equivalent amount. So it was potentially providing this opportunity for low-income students, first-generation students. But in reality, they were not using it as much as those wealthy students. And, and that was the part of the story that the College Board really left out of their public presentation of the data when they released it. And it seemed to me that they took it one step further into, perhaps I'm being too harsh, but outright misrepresentation with this more recent argument that actually the SAT is this equalizer and grades are a form of discrimination when the data shows the opposite, right, according to your work? Yeah, I, I had the same feeling that they made this case publicly in 2017 that because of grade inflation, which is a genuine thing, grades really are inflating, that rich kids were getting this advantage from high school grades that only the SAT could level the playing field and save low-income students from the advantages that rich kids were getting from their grade inflation. And the data just doesn't bear that out. I mean, there has been great inflation and there's some data that says that private school students are, at private schools, grades are inflating more than at public schools. But when you look at it by race, by family income, there is no indication that more advantaged groups are experiencing more great inflation than less advantaged groups. And there remains a whole lot of evidence that SAT and ACT scores give lots of advantages to the most privileged, most affluent families in our society. You had a fascinating concept in your book, as well as in the New York Times magazine cover story about this that was really interesting, SAT discrepant. So talk about what that means and what you saw. Yeah, this was the study that College Board did and just did not spend a lot of time getting this out to the public. But I think it's a really important, it helped me understand what was going on with SAT scores and admissions. The way they divided the population up in the study, about two-thirds of high school seniors have test scores and high school GPAs that are more or less correlate. So that's true for most students, that basically your, your SAT score is what your, your they GPA... They do line up there. there exactly. it, it actually is a measurement, at least, of, of high school achievement. Right. And so for those students, your SAT score doesn't really matter. If the college just looked at your GPA, they would admit the same students as if they looked at both. But then there are these two groups, each about a sixth of the population that have discrepancies. Either they have test scores that are uh, higher than what their GPA would predict, or they have GPAs that are higher than what their test score would predict. And when the College Board looked at these groups, they found there were real demographic differences. And so the group that tended to have uh, higher test scores than their GPA would predict were more likely to be male, more likely to be white and Asian, more likely to have affluent, uh, well-educated parents. 
And what educators also tell you is these students, the students with, with higher SAT scores than their GPAs, tend not to be the most motivated ones because your GPA is a reflection not only of intellectual capability, but also of your work ethic, how hard you actually work at school. Then there's this other group, the group that has higher GPAs than their SAT score would predict. And those students are more likely to be female, more likely to be black and Latino or Latina, more likely to have less affluent, less educated parents. And so those are the students, statistically, who are most disadvantaged by a system of admissions that puts a lot of emphasis on test scores. These are students, you know, who often have really high GPAs. They are like Shannon Torres, the student I met from the Bronx. They work incredibly hard at school. They are right at the top of their classes, but their test scores can't keep up. And certainly in my reporting, the indications are when those students get to a good college, and especially if they get a little extra support from that institution, they do great. But a system that focuses on test scores as the main metric of admissions is, is going to ignore those students, is not going to give them a chance. It's one group of students that we are for sure failing, which are those students whose GPA would say, you can do something at a highly selective college, you can succeed here. And then their test score is saying something different and we're letting the test score influence the outcome. But increasingly, we're not. Do you think this test score blind philosophy that's spreading with the University of Chicago, embracing it more recently, does that fix the issue or is it part of a fix? I think it might be part of FX, yeah. I think it's easy to overestimate what a difference it will make. So the University of, of Chicago is now the most selective institution to have gone what, what admissions people call test optional, meaning there's still lots of students who apply to, to University of Chicago and submit their test scores, but if they want to not submit their test scores, they can, and Chicago will still consider them. And an increasing number of schools, especially small liberal arts colleges, uh, have test optional admissions. Uh, and I think it does give an opportunity to students like those discrepant students to get admission to the kind of institutions they wouldn't be considered at otherwise. But it is not Test optional admissions is not a magic bullet because there are still so many other pressures on these institutions. I mean, like Trinity, the college in Connecticut where I did so much of my reporting, they went test optional, but they still, their big pressure was the fact that they needed tuition they dollars. Need and so it wasn't easy for them to admit low-income students, whatever their grades, whatever their test scores, they needed tuition dollars. Talk about the myth of the wealthy welder. Uh, so... One of the students who I followed was a one, one of these students who didn't particularly like high school. His name was Ori. He was in a white working class rural family in Western North Carolina. And he, after he got out of high school, he went to work. He didn't get any kind of post-secondary credential, worked in factories, worked changing oil. And after about five or six years, he was making more than minimum wage, but he was basically still broke and had come to believe that there were no great opportunities in the economy for people without anything more than a high school degree. And so he enrolled in community college to study welding. And so I was following him through that path. And at the same time, there was this new rhetoric in the United States about welding as this perfect alternative to college. And especially among certain politicians and certain media outlets, there was this push that college was a waste of money. It was a waste of time. In fact, there were all these opportunities through the skilled trades for which you did not need a college degree. And so as I followed Ori, partly I just wanted to see what happened to him and understand what it was like to be in his shoes. But partly I wanted to, to understand this debate and this rhetoric about welding and about the skilled trades through his eyes. And what I found was that there were two big, big problems with this 
argument that welding is the perfect alternative to college. One is that you need to go to college in order to become a welder. So Ori was enrolled in community college. He was completing a two-year degree. Welding is really complicated. He had to I think he had to do 13 different technical classes plus uh, metallurgy and English and math and how to read blueprints. It's a complicated uh, career and he needed college in order to get there. And at the same time, part of the rhetoric that was being thrown around during those years was that there was this huge opportunity for people in skilled trades to make $150,000 a year. There was a Wall Street Journal op-ed that made that case. And then that sort of turned into this meme that made its way through the media. And there are certain welders who are able to make that much, but the average salary, the median salary for a welder right now is $41,000, which is well below the national median salary. It's, so there's a way that the, the argument just focuses on those high earning welders to make the case against college. And so part of the argument is right, that we should be doing a better job to help students like Ori get credential to help them become welders. It is a good job for him, even if it's not paying $150,000 a year. But the, the kind of the irony of that argument, the argument is used to undercut funding for colleges because the argument is not we should be spending more on colleges so that people could, can become welders. The argument is we don't need to spend money on colleges because people can become welders. And so that argument is part of why over the last 10 years or so, North Carolina, where Ori lives, cut its funding to community colleges, including the one that he was going to, by um, millions of dollars. And so his tuition went up, the resources that his college has went down, and it became harder and harder for him to get this degree. So at this moment where the rhetoric is all about how there are these fantastic opportunities in the skilled trades for people without college credentials, in the actual colleges where actual students like Ori are trying to learn to be welders, we are cutting funding to those institutions and making it harder and harder for students like Ori to succeed. That's stunning and incredibly disheartening. Why do you why do you think that is? Do you think it's a matter of ideology that, again, it's more convenient to believe that it's up to people to succeed and we've given them all the tools and the tools are there in society and if they can't take advantage of it, well, it's their fault. Is it just convenience or is there something deeper going on? It's a good question. I think there is some partisan skew to it. I think it's partly that people want to pay less taxes and so we don't want to pay for public higher education the way we used to. But I do think that it, yeah, it's sort of the flip side of, of the status quo case that we've made before. If we force ourselves to look realistically at the opportunities that a student like Ori has, it means we, we have to do a whole lot more work. And, and that is the reality, right? We need to do a much better job of creating a system of community colleges, technical colleges, public universities that can help students who are not at the top of their class from low-income communities find their way to a decent middle-class life. We have not created that system right now, but if we tell ourselves that in fact there are a lot of opportunities that if a student like Ori is not succeeding, it's his fault, it's his problem, it's something you know unusual about him, it lets us off the hook. It lets us say, we've given these kids all the chances they need, but the reality is there are millions of students like Ori who are not able to make their way through the system. And a big reason for that is that we are not providing enough support for them. Like so many things, it's a convenient argument in the short term and utterly devastating in the long term, right? Did all of this research make you change your mind or think differently or think about what decisions you would try to encourage your children to make? So my kids, I have two boys, they're four and 10. So college is still a little ways off. But I think I actually did go through with my older son, who's 10, I did go through sort of two cycles as I did my reporting. And the first was 
it made me more anxious. And so as I would read these sociology texts about how like the sports that you play in, you know, middle school are this great predictor of whether you're going to get hired by Goldman Sachs after college, all of the advantage that is clear the students who go to the most selective institutions have, it made me anxious. And I just started feeling like, yeah, what sports should I enroll him in? What extra, you know, tutoring should he be doing now? And it, it made me, I think, a, a less pleasant father to be around. But then the experience of reporting at the University of Texas, I think, changed my mind again and made me feel like going to one of those super selective institutions means going right now anyway, means going to an institution where almost every student is from a really affluent, privileged background. And there is not there might be sort of token diversity, but there is not sort of real diversity. And I think that diversity is, you know, it's not just something you pay lip service to. It really does matter in terms of the education of a student. And so the feeling that I had at big public institutions, including UT, was just much more what I would want for my kids. It's a place where there's an excellent education going on, but there's also an education in sort of being an American or at UT being a Texan. There's this sense of, to my mind, a much more sort of equitable, much more fair idea of sort of how the meritocracy works, how social mobility works. And that, I think, is as, as important a part of education as uh, what's actually happening in the classroom. This is the world in all its messy glory, right, and human potential. And I, I thought that too. Wow, University of Texas, here we come. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for, for being here. This was really illuminating and I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, me too. In this conversation, I was struck by how our beliefs, whether they be beliefs of convenience or of ideology, can override the clear evidence in front of us. It's so much easier to believe in the wealthy welder, to believe that colleges are admitting the most qualified candidates, and to believe that kids who fail in college just weren't supposed to be there in the first place. But oh, the waste of human potential that those beliefs entail. There's a huge long-term cost to that. So what can we do? Well, I'm all for the Texas approach, but I also think that especially in these times of budget shortfalls, business leaders need to take a more proactive approach to education. If you aren't finding the skills and the diversity that you want, help build them. As for politicians, well, I think the best we can hope for is more happy accidents. Making a Killing is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Chalk and Blade. It's produced by Ruth Barnes and Laura Hyde. My executive producers are Allison McLean, No Relation, and Megan Casey. The executive producer at Pushkin is Mia Lobel. Engineering by Jason Rostkowski. Our music is by Jed Flood. Special thanks to Jacob Weisberg at Pushkin and everyone on the show. I'm Bethany McLean. Thanks so much for listening. Find me on Twitter at BethanyMac12 and let me know which episodes you've most enjoyed. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 
Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.